Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very happy to be joined by Dr. Sky Marietta and Dr. Jeff Marietta, the Mariettas. They're married and they're a couple who wrote a really interesting book called Rural Education in America. We're going to spend some time diving into it. It did blow my mind in a good way. It opened up my perspective in a really interesting way. And I'd recommend it not just to those of us who might have an academic interest. It's just eye-opening perspective on rural America. But that's enough of me talking. I'd like to welcome the Mariettas to the show. Jeff and Sky, welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks. It's great to be on. Thanks for inviting us. We're excited. Yeah, yeah. we're very excited to talk to you today. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we always begin by getting our guests' origin stories. And uh, fortunately enough, some interesting aspects of your origin story come through in your book. I feel like it'll be a natural way for us to, to jump into what drove uh, you to write Rural Education in America. But can you talk about who you are and, you, and how you got to this point in your uh, professional lives? Yeah, sure. So it's a long and meandering story, but I was born and raised up in northern Minnesota on the Iron Range, went to school out in Montana, and then joined Teach for America and ended up on the Navajo Reservation um, in New Mexico as a high school special education teacher. And I was a varsity baseball head coach. And I was there the first year they were there. And then I met Sky the next year. That's right. I grew up in um, Eastern Kentucky. I am the number five of my parents' seven children, and I always really wanted to leave the town and the community that I grew up in, so I went off to college in Connecticut. I went to Yale. It was very mind-blowing to go to an Ivy League school from the public school I'd gone to. Also then decided to join Teach for America, and at the time, New Mexico, Navajo Nation was one of their not so many rural placements they had, and that's where Jeff and I met. I started off teaching elementary school. Mm Mm-hmm. And we were there for four years in various leadership roles and positions. We were teachers and administrators on the Navajo Nation and the school system there, which is larger than the state of Rhode Island. And so just huge and rural and a lot of native language issues and obviously oppression. And it was, mm-hmm. you know, just a, a life-changing experience. And Sky and I started talking about graduate school and she said, you should apply to Harvard. I was looking at MBA programs because of administration, never knew about Ivy League schools or anything. And I just thought real smart people and rich people went there. And she said, no, they're not actually that smart, but they are rich. (laughs) (laughs) Except for her. So she, so I, we applied to Harvard and I got into the MBA program and she started in the PhD program at the ed school. And then we moved, we went from the Navajo nation where we stopped in Kentucky and got married in Harlan County, Harlan County, County. well-known Harlan County in a number of levels. I knew it from the the Barbara Koppel documentary, but Harlan County, USA, but for a small place, it does have some cultural relevance and that's your neck of the woods sky. Correct. Yes, yeah. yeah I have yeah. family going back generations. But yeah. and we actually got married at the school that my mom had taught at in Harlan County in the sixties. Wow. And then went straight from there up to Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Um and, and moved into Cambridge. And I started the human development program and Jeff started his MBA. He didn't last very long. He managed to complete his MBA while still doing stuff at the ed school, but very shortly after that, he came over as well to the school of education. Right. 
Yeah. And so we were there and immersed in the world of Harvard and we were freshman proctors, dorm parents living in Harvard Yard, which is how we were able to afford everything. And at the very end, I started a software company and we were living this dream startup academia life. And we had two young children, uh, one named Harlan and then the other one named Perry, which is a county just north of Harlan County. Mm -hmm. And then it's it's famous because the county seat is Hazard. Ah, sure, sure. Oh my goodness. That's a whole, that's a whole nother episode. Once we started talking Dukes of Hazard. (laughs) And Sky's mom got really sick and we had two kids and we were facing this road. And at that point in time, this executive director position at Pine Mountain Settlement School, which is this national historic landmark, this beautiful place, this former school where we got married, Mm -hmm. that had a lot of issues come open, get filled, come open, get filled. And they were going bankrupt. And this mentor of mine said, when you're on the job market, you got to apply for something that's totally different. Yeah. And so we, Sky and I talked about who would be the better person to apply for it. And I applied for it mostly because I had my MBA and financial issues. And we ended up moving from Harvard Yard down to Pine Mountain Settlement School, which is a half an hour to 45 minutes from the nearest grocery store, you know, stoplights in the middle of the most rural part you can get on the Eastern Seaboard. Yeah. There's a Green Acres element uh, to this uh, (laughs) as well, which I'm just picking up on now, but I don't know if there's any sitcoms in development, but it does seem like moving from Harvard Yard to Harlan County must have been uh, a bit of a, a culture shift. And then in many ways that led you on a path towards this focus, this deeper focus on, on rural education. Sky, can you maybe pick up there on, on what the move back was like and what drove you there? Obviously moving from a place like Cambridge is a big city right outside of Boston to Harlan County is a very rural, we're in a very rural remote part of it, but we moved in June and right when we moved the presidential election of Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton was just getting started. Mm -hmm. And people's perception of our move completely changed as that um, election went underway. So then obviously Donald Trump was elected later that November. And so not only do we move from a place that was very uh, urban to a place that was very rural, we moved from one of the counties where the highest percentage of people voted to Hillary Clinton to one of the counties in America where some of the higher percentages voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. And we really saw people's perceptions change at that point. Moving to Appalachia, doing work in Appalachia, returning to your Appalachian homeland was a much more neutral thing to do pre that election. Yeah. And yeah, culturally, we saw a lot of changes. It was a big change for our children who'd been going to preschool in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And we were doing a very different kind of work than we had been doing previously. It ended up happening during this time where our country was really wrestling with rural urban divides. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what was really striking about the book is that it really opened up my thinking around diversity and inclusion, which is something we talk about a lot, where I probably had a stereotypical understanding of what rural uh, America is, uh, even just in terms of the demographics, which you outlay really beautifully throughout the book. But even beyond that, more just the lived experience of being in rural America is something that you spend a a good amount of time on uh, in the book. There's both the definitional aspect of what it means to be rural based on the census or the demographics, but then more from a a personal identity and cultural identity and a sense of community. There is another notion to what it means to be uh, rural. Can you expand on that a little bit? 
Sure. There's definitely sometimes a deficit perspective on rural America, just to be frank, that people who have the capacity and the intelligence find ways to get out and don't return. Mm -hmm. But I can say that definitely that's not what Jeff and I found to be the case. It's not that we moved to Appalachia and it was a hard place to live because suddenly we were surrounded by people who were all the same. Fundamentally, people aren't that different between Cambridge and Harlan County. There's different struggles in the day-to-day life, but overall, people's priorities for their children, their caring for the community and things like that are very much the same. We happened to move there at a time in our life where my mother had just died. And we lived in a community where my mom had been a teacher Mm -hmm. and people were very loving to us. They were very kind and very much pulled us in and made us a part of the community. And we've been here ever since with no plans to move on to a different location. Yeah. Yeah. And I was struck also uh, by the level to which the schools are frequently the center of the community. And you've done a lot of research into what works and you even have some recommendations around how to think about solving some of the problems or at least beginning to understand what the right way to understand rural education is. But, but Jeff, maybe from your perspective, can you expand on the idea of the school as the, the center of the community? Yeah, it, you think about just the simplest term, sports, mm-hmm. and the cliche of the Friday night lights. That is the simplest surface level. That's the tip of the iceberg. All the community members gathering for whether it's an athletic event or whether it's a theater performance or mm-hmm. a concert, the school is where it's happening. Now, dig down layers deeper and schools are crisis support centers. They are organizing spots. They are where if a family's house burns down, that's Mm -hmm. where the first place that that family is going to try to get support from. Even with COVID and pandemic, schools would honestly be the most logical places to have mass vaccination in rural areas. And the schools really become the pulse of the community in ways that aren't just transactional. They're not just, I send my kid there and they go get an education and come back. And many schools across America, of course, aren't that way. But in rural communities, You don't have all of the other organizations and activities, and I would call them distractions, um, going on in a community. The school becomes that center place where everyone comes together. And they're also, I don't want to say a melting pot because that term I think is, is problematic, but the other piece that I think gets missed about schools that we try to touch on over and over again in the book is you have the wealthiest people in the community side by side with the poorest Mm -hmm. and they're all going to the same school. Mm -hmm. And we challenge and and get into some research about the level of socioeconomic integration that happens at schools Mm -hmm. and how important that is to the the livelihood of of everybody, but also just the, the community itself. Yeah, I was really struck by the level to which education is really foundational in a lot of these communities to the point that the idea of being a teacher in the public school is very much understood as a leadership role and someone who's really like central to the community. Sky, you were talking about your mother's role in the community. That to me resonated very much with what I hear about community-based education and the idea that in many urban schools, one of the problems is that the 
teachers are commuting into the community. I didn't understand that aspect either. Definitely in a lot of rural communities like the one that we live in, teaching is a good job. The pay is above the median salary. It's a competitive position. You have some really excellent teachers who are in the positions long-term, who are embedded in the community. Actually, back when we were at Harvard, when I was doing my dissertation, I was studying the contrast in literacy development for children in parts of rural Appalachia, where there's high incidence of poverty compared with urban clusters in New England, where there's also a high incidence of poverty. And if you grow up in a community I think you stop seeing it necessarily as your students are poor. You're just serving them. And there's a very high background knowledge about what some of their needs are. And the research shows, if you look at test scores in Appalachia, they aren't that low. Now, this is really interesting because educational attainment is actually the lowest in the country in central Appalachia. But if you looked at test scores in elementary school at, at students' reading levels, that's not what's causing the problem. We have a lot of really high quality, highly skilled teachers. And again, we ought to know because our children are enrolled in these schools that are here yeah. locally and we get to participate and watch that all the time. And then how about the, the myth busting about what rural education in, the, in America might be? Another one was that there is a lot of poverty. There's issues that you outline around uh, opioid addiction and uh, life expectancy. There's a lot of negatives that you don't shy away from, but I, I was somewhat inspired by some of the other maybe less known data points that you highlight. One of which is that I, I, I believe it's the more distant your education is from a big urban center, the more likely that you're going to find pathways uh, to social mobility. That's right. And we did deal with the tough issues that you mentioned in the book. And we have, after the introduction, the next chapter is called From the Outside Looking In. And yeah. that's when we name all the bad things that New York Times and other places like to say about rural areas. And then that's followed by a chapter called From the Inside Looking In. And that highlights the strengths of rural communities that are often overlooked in the general narrative. And one of those is by the preeminent econo economist, Roz Chetty, and the Equality of Opportunity Project. And he published this seminal piece in 2014 that showed that the further you were away from a major metropolitan area, the greater your chances were at a socioeconomic intergenerational improvement. Mm -hmm. And then some researchers at the University of Washington said, maybe that's not the case. Maybe there are clusters of communities that are just on the edge of cities. And then they did another analysis of the data and found actually, no, that the more rural you are the most rural places in America are actually those that have the best chance of achieving American dream. Mm -hmm. And I share this uh, research with people and everyone has the same reaction that you have, which is, well, in trying to justify, yeah. and I could name off some justifications that people sure. might say, well, the economy has collapsed in rural areas. Right. And during the time period that this research was done, all those rural people that found better livelihoods all moved to the city. The agglomeration effect, that may be account for some of it, but that's just not the case in the communities that we live in and what the research bears out, mm -hmm. is that when you actually have people from different socioeconomic strata going to school and living with each other, mm -hmm. they actually have better life outcomes. Yeah. And I think I would argue that one of the biggest problems that we have in America right now is segregation, racial and socioeconomic. Yep. And I think COVID has completely accelerated that trend. You have the wealthy 
creating classrooms in their homes, converting theater spaces into classrooms and clustering people together. And they're keeping it secret. I'm surprised there aren't more articles about that happening because yeah. obviously people wouldn't want to be interviewed because it'd be embarrassing. That's the America we live in right now. We live in a divided, increasingly unequal America. And that's where rural America has people saying, just because your dad is incarcerated and your mom is in recovery and you're living with your grandparents and they're on a fixed income, mm -hmm. you're still buddies with my son who has two doctors, not the useful kind, but <laughs> researchers <laughs> as parents yeah. um, and, and they're friends and they learn from each other and they have debates. Yeah. And they bet each other, our kids bet their friends, they bet who's going to win the presidency, Biden or Trump. And they, are these conversations happening in other places across America besides mm -hmm. in very isolated instances where you have this mixing of socioeconomic folks? It, it is almost more of a, a communal sensibility that these kids are part of the community. All means all is something that you hear a lot in urban settings where frequently there are kids who are left out. I don't get that same sense from your characterization of rural America. There, there's a little more of a, a sense of inclusion and maybe recognition of some of the challenges that are out there. When you when you do have that segregated experience you're describing, Jeff, frequently it's easier to be out of sight, out of mind. Yes, 100%. But that's not to say that there aren't people who feel excluded or feel harassed. Yes. That obviously is the case, but we have personally experienced numerous cases of transgendered youth, African-American, Hispanic youth, community members being welcomed and accepted. Some people here may disagree, but they're not going to not include that person and not accept them into the community because the fact is that rural communities need everybody. Yeah. It's a survival uh, instinct. And mm. what's really not the survival of the fittest that I think dominates the thinking in urban areas where yeah. it's at least our experience in Cambridge where it's transactional. Right. And you hire these people and you get this and you work your way up. And mm -hmm. here it's, you just need to work with everybody because you're going to see them in the grocery store or yeah. they're going to be your dentist or right. be well, around. Yeah. Well, and it, and the infrastructure to support people who are in any kind of crisis is very different in a rural community. One of the factors that we talk about in there is I think it's for every, um, $400 spent in Kentucky and South Carolina by a foundation, $4,000 is spent in San Francisco. So you right. don't have the nonprofits, you don't have the philanthropy. So you don't have these layers of support that people rely on when something goes wrong. Uh, you do find that if, again, if, if somebody's house burns down, odds are they don't have insurance actually. Yeah. And actually that spaghetti supper at the school that raises money for them or those other things, people bringing them in, people bringing them close people are used to finding the solutions locally and amongst each other. Yeah. That's the reality. Yeah. And the, the related point, I think you were touching on it a little bit, Jeff, is issues around access. So while they may be inclusive, just the geography of rural America, the distances that buses need to drive, the challenges of getting physically to that school center is different. The amount of absenteeism is another thing that, uh, that is more uh, front and center when you think about rural America. And I think that'll lead a little bit into a conversation perhaps about the shift 
to digital and the, the digital divides that we're seeing in light of the pandemic and, and schools moving online. But can you just characterize a bit for our listeners some of the differences that make delivering rural education more expensive and more logistically complex? Yeah, for one, the resources are not distributed equally between rural and urban. So start there with the Title I weighting formula disadvantages high poverty rural communities because it uses a number weighting that is based off pure numbers, not proportion. So you start with fewer resources and what Sky was talking about the foundation. So let's just start at the base level. You have less money, okay, Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. rural areas for a host of reasons. Then let's tack on just the sheer geographic distances to cover for busing. Here in the mountains of Eastern Kentucky, we had an ice storm and you've got roads and you've got municipalities and counties that don't have the infrastructure, plows, salt, etc. Buses can't go, kids don't go to school. So, you know, the years we've been here and the years, many years now, you're looking at 20 to 30 days of snow days, snow and ice days, and, and then tack on just the cost of delivering and getting students to and from school. It's just, there's a lot of extra cost in rural communities now, people might say the salaries, it's a lower cost of living, but the, the fact is that the salaries are often set by the state. Mm-hmm. And in many states, you have to make sure you pay your teachers a competitive rate so they can right. live in the city. Mm-hmm. So the teachers, the cost of the salaries and everything is going to be the same in r- rural communities as in urban. We're really talking about fewer resources similar or more costs than urban areas. Yeah. Yeah. And then that was something that was managed, however it was pre-pandemic. And then in light of (laughs) the pandemic, A, there's less money to go around to begin with, but even beyond the the financial squeeze, just the cultural shift of rather than go to that central place, the, the hub of the community, the school that becomes very much central to not just the children's lives, really the lives of the family and the community, now suddenly that aggregating space is no longer available and a lot of classes are moving online. You touch on it in the book, but I'd love to get maybe a little more depth beginning with you, Sky. What's it been like in light of this crazy transformative experience we've gone through over the last year? We submitted the book manuscript on March 1st, 2020 and had no idea at the time that in a couple of weeks our children's school would be closed. And it's now been 340 days since their school closed and they've been in school in person twice. Mm. for two days. Rural schools face an incredibly different challenge when it comes to the pandemic and a transition to online learning. First of all, across America, 39% of rural residents don't have access to broadband, good enough internet speeds to download and stream videos and things like that compared with 4% in urban areas. You, You live in a place like the mountains of Appalachia and that's really exacerbated. So in the community we live in, 30% of homes have zero access to the internet. Infrastructure just isn't there. So you're trying to deliver school remotely to students who don't have internet at home. And even when they did other workarounds, like there was a program they tried where they sent tablets home. It turns out the tablets needed data from a cell tower. And you can get 10 minutes away from our house and drive an hour before you get cell phone service at all. And I think a lot of Americans are unaware that there's large communities where not only is there very limited internet access, the internet access is very expensive when it's there for very poor speeds, but oftentimes there isn't even 
adequate cell phone coverage or data coverage. It's not like you can pick up Zoom off of your cell phone. So transitioning to that, you can imagine the additional hurdles. These are not families that already were used to using things like Chromebooks in the home or used to going online. And the kinds of programs that are easiest to do under poor data circumstances focus on the most rote skills. Yeah. Just trying to problem solve. One thing our school has done is they went to paper packets for first grade. Well, imagine a first grade experience where you don't get to have a single collaborative discussion with your first grade teacher, where instead you have a five page photographed worksheets working through and imagine the kind of inequality. And of course, this is an Appalachian community where already a very high percentage of the children are living in poverty and are worrying about getting enough food. And again, a lot of times healthcare is delivered through schools and things like that. And I think what we're going to see is really big chasm of inequality open up for a lot of rural communities at the end of this when we get Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Slightly sobering note there, but the road ahead is the other place that we typically like to move towards. And I I know that is uh, part of what you included in your your book. Uh, So there's an element of elevating consciousness about this, which at least starting with uh, your friendly podcast host, I've at least learned from your book and hopefully our listeners are learning as well. So job done there. But uh, but now what? So what does this mean moving forward? But a lot of my listeners are educators or care about the future of learning, care about uh, the future of our schools. Where are we now? And uh, where do you all see us heading? Yeah, I think that one thing that we point out over and over again is that a one size fits all urban centric approach to educational policy doesn't work. And we need to be looking at more differentiated, practical, uh, effective based methods. And so that's just one thing on itself. And then when you start moving down, that means not penalizing rural schools on funding formulas, not trying to infuse too much high stakes accountability testing on schools that their numbers themselves aren't statistically significant or valid. So why are you doing that? And then we also touch on the philanthropic and what maybe the woke people would call the nonprofit industrial complex, which I would say exists very much in in high poverty communities. And we experience it on a daily basis, people from outside the community being the experts being paid by large foundations and also federal grants Mm -hmm. to come in to the community to literally come in, like drive an hour and a half for a few hours and try to guide the way for people who are the experts themselves and know what to do. And so I think having the, 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 the policymakers grant some flexibility at the federal and state level to local communities and still obviously hold them accountable you know, to make sure all students' needs are addressed, but then also some reflection from the philanthropic community. And I've been seeing some really good stuff from some people about can the philanthropic community actually act towards justice when the foundation, pardon the pun, I guess, the foundation of the philanthropic community is built off of wealth accumulation. And I think there's a lot of conversations that the Trump world could have with the the folks in urban areas about inequality and how outsiders often get picked to either lead or disrupt or things like that. All in all, and I probably should have led with this, which is we need more bridge building. 
and more exchanges between people in rural America and people in urban America. And it's mm -hmm. like what Sky said from the very, very beginning. We all want the same thing. We really do. Yeah. We all want good schools. We all want quality healthcare, a quality affordable healthcare. We all want career worthy jobs that pay a living wage. And then all these things I'm saying, they get taken by politicians and perverted into talking points that speak to their bases and then nothing happens. Right. And I think that's the state of affairs we're in right now that is just so frustrating to see. And I'm just gonna say on the right and the left because my politics definitely lean further right than skies do. But we both see both sides and there's a big area in the middle of solutions yeah. and there's so much low hanging fruit. It's frustrating to see. And we work really hard to take a strengths-based approach in the book. And there's a lot of rural communities that we don't know much about, especially as we go through this sort of evidence-based empirical, it's all about the data and education. We have very little information about rural students of color with disabilities, for yeah. example, or migrant students, or a lot of our Native American students. Mm -hmm. And the point we try to push on and the actions and activities we push people through is to understand that there are experts on these communities. It's just, they aren't at Harvard and they aren't in New York City. They're actually in those communities themselves. Yeah. So if we're going to serve those communities and if we're going to build bridges, we can't imagine that external experts are going to serve that role. We have to be willing to visit and spend time and build relationships and understand the needs within that community and how we can work with people there and empower people on the ground mm -hmm. to build the kind of community and educational opportunities that they'd like. If we can accomplish that anywhere, then that I would say is an American dream for what education could do. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it, it does remind me of a lot of the focus that I've heard around reskilling and the future of work has generally gone to can we teach coal miners how to code, which it's part of the conversation, but that the surface level understanding, we will have to figure out what to do with adults who need to be reskilled. That is a separate topic, but it's more understanding the, the educational system that is producing graduates who will need jobs, needs more love and care and needs more awareness across the board. Y'all certainly raised my awareness, so I appreciate that. Before we let you go, and the name of the book is... Rural Education in America, What Works for Our Students, Teachers, and Communities. Awesome. Yeah, it's a really interesting read. I would recommend it. But uh, before we let you go, I always love to ask my guests, what else is happening in the world around you that's capturing your imagination? So I know y'all are deeply embedded in the problems of rural education, but... Maybe taking a little bit of a step back, is there anything else you're noticing? Any other things that you think should be on people's radar as we move on into the 2020s? The thing that occurs to me, which may or may not be right, is we know this woman, Zoe Banti, she's Zuni and she lives in Zuni. And there's been a huge problem with the coronavirus closing things down and people having access to food. Mm. And she has on her own with a group of other mothers coordinated this whole food delivery system and getting food to elders and to the community. And I think what's remarkable about her is she, again, she's not a nonprofit. She's just doing it from the ground up. And I think that we have seen increasingly as this difficult time with the coronavirus has come up, we've seen people on the ground taking charge and finding solutions. And I think that's really cool. And I hope to see more of it. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of your point before about in, in these rural communities, if you don't band together, 
you're going to fail. Again, Friday Night Lights reference, clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. You got to get the whole community together. Wonderful conversation. Any uh, final thoughts as we wrap up here? Yeah, come out to Eastern Kentucky and we'll host you and we'll show you a good time and feel free to reach out. And yeah, thanks for having us on. It's been awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jeff and Sky Marietta. The book is called Rural Education in America. Check it out. Thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, tell a friend, subscribe. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. Mm -hmm.